Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. A very quick reminder, brothers Lyle and Eric Menendez shot their parents dead in their home in 1989. They were 21 and 18 years old at the time. They never denied that they did it, but both insisted that their father sexually abused them for years, that their mother let it happen, and that the killings were in self-defense. And a jury, though, did not agree. 30 years ago, it's been 30 years, the brothers were convicted of first-degree murder, sent to prison for life without parole. Fast forward to this year and a bombshell documentary in which a former member of the boy band Menudo claims that the Menendez's brother's father molested him too. Are you ready to tell all the details? Because they're very shocking. Yes. He is the key to getting action even after all these decades. I know what he did to me in his house. Okay, and in some other recently discovered evidence, and the Menendez's brother's lawyer says Lyle and Eric, now in their 50s, should be out of prison. And who is their lawyer, you ask? Well, it is our friend Mark Garagos. He is back uh, joining us now. All right, Mark, this is like a story that I think I'm hooked on because something doesn't feel right here, and it does feel like it's getting new energy. Um, I know it's been a few uh, weeks now since you filed uh, a motion to have the case reheard. Where does that process stand? Well, you know, we've had um, what I would say I'm cautiously optimistic about. We filed in May a what's called a writ of habeas corpus. We cited the this uh, explosive allegations from the Menudo uh, member and a letter that uh, was excluded. And now um, we have got a what's called a request for a, um, a informal reply from the DA's office that was issued by the judge where we filed it. So we're very, very, um, I wouldn't say optimistic, but cautiously optimistic that the tide, the tide has changed, that we have now compelling evidence. And you have to understand, Brian, what happened back then was there were actually three juries in over two trials. In the first trial with two juries, one for Lyle, one for Eric, the jury heard all of the evidence, heard the abuse evidence, and were split. They were hung on whether it was murder or manslaughter. They're not trying to excuse what they did. All they're saying is that clearly the abuse explains and negates malice. Now, what happened between jury trial uh, one and two and jury trial number three, where there was just one jury, is that the judge, who was the same in both cases, changed the ground rules in the second case. He mm. basically invited the prosecution to the beginning of the case to wipe out imperfect self-defense. They didn't take the bait. 
Then he waited until evidence was closed and he withdrew the imperfect self-defense. A complete changing of the rules. You don't have to believe me. There's a ninth, there's a tape of the Ninth Circuit argument in which one of the judges, the Ninth Circuit judges, basically said, you change the rules in the middle of the game so you get a conviction. So, so what These do you... two have now been in for 33 years. The law has changed. But more importantly, how we view these things as a society has changed. Somebody smarter than me made the comment, if these were the Menendez sisters, they would not be in custody. Right, and how and differently would it have been handled today? I think, like you said, we're in a different time. I'm curious, um, Lyle and Eric, what do they make of this new energy behind their case, the documentary? What, what's the latest with them? I, well, I talked to one or both uh, with some degree of frequency, and I can... I think they they would, without revealing attorney-client, share my optimism here. I think we really have um, quite a bit that we can present that should, that uh, strongly, strongly is to quote Rosie. It's time. It's the it's the perfect time. You know, somebody had asked me years ago before I um, took on the representation. There was starting to be a movement amongst TikTokers. I don't know if you're aware of this, but they, they, I wasn't, and I'm not an avid TikTok user, but there was a movement there. And I was interviewed for a story and I said, you know, I've seen other cases, um, many that you can think of, I'm sure, Brian, where when the public starts to see, wait a second here, this a conviction may have been more a product of the time where the case was tried as opposed to the evidence and how we have kind of evolved. And I think that's exactly what we have here. Do the brother, I'm just thinking about all this time that they've been behind bars, do they get to talk to each other? Yeah, well, recently they are now in the same, they're housed in the same facility. Both have been model, model inmates. Uh, we're putting together the packages uh, in mitigation as well. And I will tell you uh, that Eric, Eric has a record of helping others, promoting programs, uh, doing all kinds of the work that one has to do and has had such an impressive mm. grasp, introspective grasp of everything that went on that it's it's truly one of the most impressive things to have any kind of a conversation yeah. with him and with Lyle. They're really they're really some of the two most impressive men that you can talk to. I, I, and I, I highly, enjoy I hate to them. interrupt you. We're getting close to the end of the show. I, just, I highly recommend people watch the documentary. You mentioned that letter. I mean, basically, um, Eric wrote a letter to his cousin about what his dad was doing to him, the molestation, and it got thrown out. There it is. They weren't even allowed to tell the jury about it. The jury didn't, didn't get to see that. So something very strange. Uh, Mark Aragos, thanks so much. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. This week, I'm continuing my deconstruction and analysis of the Menendez murders. I am so honoured to be joined by Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and producer Maggie Freeling. Maggie is based in New York City and has spent her career focusing on wrongful convictions, the criminal justice system and social issues. She is host and producer of Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling, Murder and Alliance, and Unjust and Unsolved podcasts, focusing on wrongful convictions and miscarriages of justice. Maggie is also the host and producer of the Pulitzer Prize-winning podcast Suave on PRX. 
The podcast also won the 2022 International Documentary Award and Maggie was nominated for the 2022 Livingston Awards for National Reporting on Suave. Sentenced at just 17 years of age, David Luis Suave Gonzalez was serving life without parole when he met reporter Maria Hinojosa. The podcast followed Suave's path to freedom and his friendship with Maria after almost three decades. Now, he was sentenced as a juvenile to serve life without parole. And as we know, juvenile brains are not fully formed. Amazingly, the Supreme Court took on his case and Suave was released. Now, why is that relevant? Well, remember, Eric was just 18 years of age and Lal was 21 when they were sentenced to life without parole. And the experts who assessed them opined their emotional and mental ages were much younger due to the abuse that they were subjected to, somewhere in the region of between 8 and 10 years old. Also, there was a huge socio-political context baked into Suave's case, and I believe the same is true regarding the Menendez case, which is exactly why I wanted to talk with Maggie. I really wanted to hear Maggie's thoughts on the habeas petition and the new evidence that's contained within it, given her experience and knowledge. And you're going to hear this very real conversation. Now, before we dive in, I want to give you a trigger warning. Listener discretion is advised. This is not an easy listen, but I guarantee it's an important one. Okay, with that having been said, let's dive into part one of this two-part interview with the amazing Maggie Freeling. Today, I have a very special guest joining me to talk about a complex case, somebody who has a lot of experience with dealing with cases and habeases. And well, we're going to get into all of that. So please introduce yourself, Maggie. Hi, thank you. I am Maggie Freeling. I am a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and producer who specifically works in the United States criminal legal system. Thank you, Maggie. And you've hosted numerous podcasts, but you also, you know, roll your sleeves up and you get involved with so many cases and you've done such incredible work. Can you just tell my listeners a little bit about that and the people that you've helped? Yeah. So, you know, I started doing detention center reporting, which was very different than the prison system. That's an incredibly scary world. And I say that coming from the prison system. So I started there working with migrants, people on the border. And now I'm in U.S. prisons. And the people I help are people that are there for crimes that they did not commit. Oftentimes, especially with women, uh, crime never occurred. Like today, I was at the exoneration of a woman named Rosa Jimenez. She did 18 years for a choking death of a baby. The baby swallowed paper towels while in her care and choked to death. And the narrative by the prosecution was that she was enraged and killed this baby. And today I got to watch her, thanks to the help of literally hundreds of people, be free after 20 years, actually, 20 years. So that's what I do. I I try to help people that do not belong in prison. Yes. I mean, I do know that case, actually, and I did listen to it. So it's interesting that you say that that's just happened. And thank goodness. And oftentimes we do see this gender bias and, and sex bias within all of the systems. And in particular, well, prison's no different and the criminal justice system is no different. So I really wanted to talk to you about the Menendez case because as I was posting about it and my discovery, because, you know, often with cases, 
we might read about it in the media or we might think we understand what's gone on. But the further I dug into this case, the Menendez brothers, the more I felt really uncomfortable about this dominant narrative that the district attorney's office had put into the zeitgeist, where everyone believed that these two boys, Eric and Lyle, killed their parents because they wanted their money. And from what I've discovered, that narrative just, I mean, for me, didn't make sense at the start. It really doesn't make sense even more so now. Now I know the detail of the case. And you were commenting on some of my posts and I just thought, oh, I'd really like to talk to Maggie about this case and see what you knew at the time, because we're going back in time. And in fact, it's the anniversary of Kitty and Jose's murders that happened on August the 20th, 1989. And it was a case that was never really about them denying that they killed their parents. It was much more about whether this was manslaughter or murder. But lots has gone on within the system, but also the media and the public of what they think about this case. So Maggie, let's start with what did you originally know about the case and what did you believe to be true about the case? Well, do you know how old I was when this happened in August of 1989? Probably very little. I had just been born. I was born in May of 1989. So I don't remember much from the beginning. You know, they went to trial. Their second trial was 95, 96. So that I do remember. That was the court TV era. I remember seeing OJ. I remember seeing them. I remember Lorena. I remember all these things, but from a child's perspective. And growing up, you know, I always just knew that narrative. It was spoiled kids, spoiled rich kids that killed their parents. And another really interesting, I don't know if you've heard of Marty Tankleff. He is an exoneree from New York. We actually went to the same high school, but he was like my local boogeyman. Everyone was like, oh, this spoiled rich kid that killed his parents. Teachers would talk to us about that growing up. Turns out he was exonerated later. He never killed his parents. But it was always this narrative that I thought of. And because of Marty so close to home, I was always thinking about the Menendez brothers. Just thinking about, you know, these kids. What is that like to kill your parents because you're so spoiled and want money and you know, the shopping sprees. And, you know, I guess I always just thought that was the narrative. I never thought more about it. I never looked into it more really until the past three or four years when they started filing more appeals and, you know, the mainstream media started picking up on, wait a second, maybe we all got it wrong back then. You know, from there working in this field, I was like, you know what, maybe we did get that wrong. Maybe all this stuff did happen. And of course, now we know reading the habeas and watching the new documentaries, particularly the one on Peacock was really good, the Menendez Menudo. There's a totally different narrative that now, finally, in 2023, we are ready to talk about. And, you know, back then, I think of Lorena, Lorena Bobbitt, and what she went through. She was domestically abused for years. And then when she, in the end, fought back and had enough, the narrative was this crazy woman who was so unwell, she cut off her husband's penis. And that's what we're seeing with these boys. We did not know how to discuss this in the 90s. And I don't even want to say no, we just... We didn't. It was just something we didn't. You were not abused. Little boys weren't abused by dads. We just were not ready to acknowledge that then. That's what I always thought for my whole life, pretty much 30 something years. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because at the time when it happened, I didn't know much about the case at all. I was younger, didn't really understand. And of course, we didn't have social media either. And social media now is can be such a power for good in terms of the detail of cases getting out there and presenting different narratives. 
But I think you're right. The fact that we didn't really understand domestic abuse and coercive control, that's a big one for me. Um, sexual abuse and particularly boys being abused. And yes, thank goodness for Peacock's Menendez and Menudo docuseries, which is very compelling. I recommend all my listeners to go ahead and, and watch that and new evidence is presented in it. So we're seeing new things within that docuseries because, of course, there have been lots of programs on this case in the past. And when I first started to dig into it, I realised just how much of those shows were based on a faux narrative and that research hadn't really been done, looking at all sides of what had gone on. And there seemed to be this real investment in this story that these Beverly Hills kids were these rich kids that just wanted the money. And even that sounded odd to me because they already had access to money. Their parents didn't deny them any money. So although they controlled the money, and that's another matter, which I'll come on to the control issue. So let's talk about the habeas then, because I guess with the habeas corpus, which effectively means in Latin, bring the body forward. Now, this is a 20-page habeas that was filed on May 3rd by Mark Geragos, who's a name that's very well known here in America, and Cliff Gardner. And they're the attorneys for Eric and Lyle. Now, I would imagine you've seen many of these habeases and read lots of them across your career. What jumped out at you, Maggie, first of all, about it? And I do want to go through it specifically for my listeners, because some of them probably haven't heard of a habeas before and don't really know what it is. So maybe let's start with explaining what it is and then, you know, what jumped out at you about it. Yeah. So habeas corpus is like the ultimate appeal that you get. So Throughout your time in prison, after your conviction, you get multiple appeals. You get a direct appeal, which everyone is entitled to. That's your first one, which is usually, you know, ineffective assistance of counsel. You're not talking about any kind of new evidence. It's just, did I get a fair trial? Those appeals usually don't go through. It's a very high bar. So after that, your appeals, you're looking to try and find what went wrong with the trial. Is there new evidence? A habeas corpus in order to file that appeal, that's the biggest one, you are going to go in front of a judge if they say, yes, you have a right to a new trial because of this. That's where the bring in the body. It has to be new evidence. And new evidence means evidence that was not already litigated at the first trial. Evidence that the jury has not seen, has not heard about, has not discussed. So what stood out in this habeas to me is that there is new evidence. You know, oftentimes I see this, I see a habeas and it's not necessarily new evidence. So it gets kind of tricky. And that's when I see them denied. It's like, well, this might've been, but this aspect of it wasn't litigated here. I am so impressed because there are two pieces of evidence that the jury had actually never seen new evidence. It was a letter from Eric to his cousin discussing this abuse eight months before their parents were murdered, before they murdered their parents, which if you ask me, that is really good evidence that something was going on then. A letter from back then, from a little boy back then. And by little boy, I mean, he was a teen then, but he's still a boy. And that's something I want to talk about. What is What qualifies as an adult here is also really scary. But the second piece of new evidence is this new witness, this person that has come forward, Roy, I forgot his last name, Rosalo. Yes. He was one of the Menudo boys who claims that Jose Menendez sexually abused him. 
if these two things were heard in the first or the second trial, at least when they were barred, I think there would have been an absolute, completely different outcome. Absolutely. So this habeas to me is is quite impressive. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy and health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey chili and zucchini, and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now they've done the maths and Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormeals, F-A-C-T-O-R, factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yes, I think the letter, first of all, let's talk about that. This was a letter that Jose Menendez's younger sister, Marta Cano, discovered. And it was her son who had received it from Eric approximately eight months before the August 1989 shooting. And bearing in mind that Andy did give evidence at the first trial, um, there were two trials in this case, but he did give evidence to say that Eric had told him and sworn him to secrecy that he was being abused by Jose Menendez. And the prosecution basically told the jury in no uncertain terms that Andy was lying about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this letter being found by Marta is actually really important because it corroborates the sexual abuse allegations. And I just want to read out what was contained within this letter because it is a key piece of evidence. So in the letter, Eric wrote, at times I wish I could talk to mum about things, you know, someday especially dad and I, but the way she worships him and tells him everything, I'm so afraid she'll tell him whatever I say, I just can't risk it. It's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now. I can't explain it. He's so overweight that I can't stand to see him. I never know when it's going to happen and it's driving me crazy. Every night I stay up thinking he might come in. I need to put it out of my mind. I know what you said before, but I'm afraid. You just don't know dad like I do. He's crazy. He's warned me a hundred times about telling anyone, especially Lyle. Am I a serious wimpus? I don't know I'll make it through this. I can handle it, Andy. I need to stop thinking about it. 
So that's the letter which corroborates that the abuse was still ongoing just months before the shooting, which is really important. And the fact that it was never seen by anybody, any of the defence team, it wasn't even known that it existed at that time. So this is very key and important evidence. And it was actually Marta who'd called Rob Rand, who was the journalist who's been following this case right from the start. And she called him to say that she had discovered this letter and he then met with her and assessed this letter and then asked all the lawyers whether they had seen it before and they all said no. So this is really important evidence, isn't it, in the case? Absolutely. This evidence is incredible. I mean, this is new. It's never been litigated. And, you know, making the assumption that they have checked, you know, I've heard of checking ink to make sure it was from back then, assuming this is a legitimate letter. That is huge for their case. That is huge. And going back to the two cases, their first case, evidence like this was allowed. The cousin who received this letter was allowed to say, testify. Eric told me about this. They had dozens of witnesses that said, yes, there was abuse, including the aunt, including the cousins, people that knew what they were going through in that home. And it's truly, I don't want to say shocking, but it's incomprehensible to me that it was not allowed at the second trial. So to find this letter, something that had not been litigated yet is incredible, really. Yes, and it was incredible to me what happened at, at both trials too, because effectively the theories of both the state and the defence teams didn't change. They were the same across the first trial and the second trial. The only difference with the second trial is that key evidence was excluded because the prosecution asked the judge, Judge Stanley Weisberg, and I keep naming him, they asked him to exclude it and he took the decision. Having heard 51 witnesses testify to the abuse, he decided to exclude key evidence, not just of the sexual abuse, but also of the violence, the physical violence and the threats. And I just want to read, it's in the habeas actually, just what the jurors heard in the first trial, and they heard from Diane Vandermolen, who was a cousin of Eric and Lal, and therefore the niece of Jose and Kitty. And she stayed with them during the summer of 1976, when Lal was eight years old. She testified that one night, eight-year-old Lal came down to her bedroom and asked if he could sleep in her room because, in quotes, he and his dad had been touching each other in the genital area. When Diane told, immediately told Kitty about this, Kitty dragged Lal away by the arm. So Diane's evidence was heard in the first trial. It was excluded in the second. The same with Peter Carno, Andy Carno's father. And he testified that when Lal was five years old, he saw Jose take a full punch at Lal, hitting him in the chest. And when he challenged Jose about this, Jose told him that he would raise his sons as he saw fit and told them to leave if they didn't like it. And he did leave with his family. And actually, I remember vividly that particular event. And I'm not going to call it an incident because this is patterned behaviour. But it was described in Rob Rand's book where he said that they were all in the living room and Lala had run off across the living room and Jose had called him back and he ignored him. Now, instead of basically reprimanding him verbally, he went and grabbed him, picked him up by his throat, then with a closed fist punched him in the stomach He'd whispered something in his ear before that and he urinated. He basically wet himself because whatever was said was so frightening to 
Lyle, who was only five years old, he punched him in the stomach and winded him and then he rushed him into his bedroom. And that's when the challenge came in. So this is another key important evidence point about patterned behaviour and it not being allowed in so the jury can't make sense of what's going on. And that's very significant for the second trial. But Peter wasn't the only one. Marianne Carnot, who was another cousin, stayed with the Menendez family over a holiday. And she testified to Jose humiliating, mocking and belittling Eric and Lyle, and that she was so uncomfortable she didn't want to stay with the Menendez family again. And Jessica Goldsmith testified that when visiting the Menendez home, when Lyle was nine, he was climbing on the staircase, hanging from it, and he became scared. And he asked his father, Jose, to help him. And Jose told Lyle to stay up there until you learn to be a man. And when Lyle started to cry, Jose punched him in the stomach and told him to learn not to cry. And then you've got Andy Carno's evidence, the cousin and friend of Eric, who testified that when Eric was 12 or 13, he told him that Jose was giving him massages in the genital area and massaging his penis. And he asked whether Andy's father did the same thing to him, but he swore him to secrecy and didn't want anybody else to know. So at the first trial, the prosecutors urged the jurors that no sexual abuse had occurred, but what was evident was actually that everyone who testified who'd been in the Menendez house had also been told that they weren't allowed to walk down past the bedroom of the boys in the hallway if Jose was in there with the boys. It was a rule. And with coercive control, we often hear about rules, but it was a rule that everybody knew about and that, again, is very clear to me what was going on. The jury understood it from the first trial, this abuse, but at the second trial, it was excluded, which had a very detrimental effect because it basically meant the defence team had no defence and therefore the boys were convicted. But I have to say, Maggie, some of the abuse that I understood from reading Rob Rand's book and lots of the prima facie evidence and talking to some of the experts who interviewed Eric and Lal, so in particular Dr. Ann Burgess, the abuse was absolutely insidious and corrosive to both the boys in terms of their developmental, their psychosocial development, that they emotionally were about the ages of eight or nine. But there was medical evidence too in that Eric had soft tissue injury to the back of his throat, which the medical examiners said was indicative of oral sex, fellatio, and oral copulation. And so there was medical evidence that also corroborated what the boys were being exposed to. And Eric and Lal, neither of them wanted to tell the individuals, the doctors who were assessing them what was really going on. They were really reluctant to. But eventually, Eric would say things like he would put cinnamon in his dad's hot drink so that the semen, when he ejaculated in his mouth, it didn't taste so bad. Or other members of the family. Lemons, yeah. Yeah, he would want these lemons or ketchup and he would have meltdowns about it, but it was to get rid of the taste in his mouth. Now, no child would ever know, A, what that taste is, or B, ever think to make something like this up, which all talks to veracity. And it's really disturbing that the decisions that were taken by the prosecution team and the judge seem to be so intentional at the second trial. And this is something, you know, you asked me when you work in wrongful convictions, what do you see often? And this is what I see. 
is intentionally trying to get a conviction. And of course, that's their job. That's the prosecution's job. We want to get a conviction. We're trying this because we believe in this case. In this instance, I was not there again. I was barely even born. But to me, and going back and looking what was going on at the time, this seems very calculated to get a conviction at all costs, whether that meant repressing evidence in a legal way. If they did it illegally, it would have been Brady. But it just seems like the prosecutor and the judge, they were working at this together because the reputation the DA's office had at the time. Okay, I'm jumping back in here to wrap part one of this fascinating interview with Maggie. There's a lot of new information contained in this episode. There are a couple of points that I just want to highlight. Firstly, I want to pick up on the fact that there was medical evidence corroborating Eric's testimony. And remember, that's alongside the 51 independent witnesses and the fact that his evidence was uncontested. Also, I want you to hear something that utterly blew my mind. Pam Bozanich was the deputy district attorney who prosecuted the case in the first trial. I'm going to play you a short clip from the first trial Now, listen very carefully to what Pam Bozanich said and argued in an open court. First of all, that um, men cannot be raped since they lack the necessary equipment to actually be raped. And it's a people's position. Did you hear it okay? Now, I can tell you I've listened to this multiple times and I'm just absolutely flabbergasted. She said... I would like to say, first of all, that men cannot be raped because they lack the necessary equipment to actually be raped. Yes, she said that out loud and argued it in an open court. I find this utterly staggering and deeply disturbing. Did Pam Bozanich really think that, that boys and men cannot be raped or abused? Did she seriously have zero knowledge about sexual assault and rape cases before prosecuting the Menendez case? Well, you're going to hear more about Pam Bozanich and what was going on in the DA's office in the next part of my conversation with the amazing Maggie Freeling. I guarantee you won't want to miss it. Until then, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instinct. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.